This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is David Frenette. David is a certified addictions counselor and has a master's degree in counseling psychology. He's an adjunct faculty member in the Religious Studies Department at Naropa University and has also taught Centering Prayer under Father Thomas Keating's guidance since 1984. He is currently serving on the pastoral council of Father Keating's international organization, Contemplative Outreach. With Sounds True, David has created a new book called The Path of Centering Prayer, Deepening Your Experience of God, in which he offers guidance in the time-honored and rewarding meditation practice of centering prayer. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, David and I spoke about the blessing that one can receive through the practice of centering prayer. We also talked about what he means by the word God and the Trinitarian mystery. We talked about Father Thomas Keating being his spiritual father and the role of a spiritual father or spiritual mother in one's contemplative life. And finally, we talked about the most important contemplative attitude that supports the practice of centering prayer. Here's my conversation with David Furnett. David, in your description of centering prayer, you talk about how we're immersing ourselves, training ourselves in consenting to the presence and action of God. And I wanted to start our conversation talking about this word consent, that we are consenting to the presence and action of God. I found that word very, very powerful. And I'm wondering what it means to you to consent. And just, I'd love to hear your sense of what that word brings up in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's an interesting term in, term, uh, in terms of meditation practice. Consent in understanding of Christianity, Christian contemplation, and centering prayer uh, helps to draw forth this response, a practiced response of opening and being in in the mystery of God, which envelops everything, but that we're usually not aware of, uh, just because we're attached to our thoughts and stimulated by emotions and, and not able to settle into the present moment where God lives and dwells and where we have our being in God. So the idea of consent is to, in terms of centering prayer, is to have a little form, a little structure for the practice that lets 
uh, helps us let go of identification with thoughts and then say yes and be in the yes that is part of the nature of God in the Christian understanding, the mystery of love that's not an emotion or a sentiment but the ground of reality, and not a concept but the ground of being that evokes this yes. So at some point the mystery of God says yes in us to life and brings us deeper into life. But in order to enter into that process, it's valuable to have a practice that um, opens up, yes, because sometimes we're pat. I am. Uh, I know what it's like to be uh, patterned and programmed by an unconscious no or resistance or contraction away from life. So God is a mystery of love that invites the yes from us, and then centering prayer is a little practice about saying yes to the presence and the transforming action of God. Now, it's interesting in what you've just said, there's a a yes that we say, we consent, but then you also mentioned something emerges in us as this action of God. That's Can you say more about that, that the yes that emerges out of us? Um, so one of, one of the great Christian teachers of uh, contemplation in recent history, Thomas Merton, had a wonderful wisdom saying. He said that uh, we become contemplatives when God discovers himself in us, when God awakens in us. So, so this is this insight that we're, as meditators, sometimes trying to achieve a goal. I'm trying to make my mind empty or find peace or something like that. Um, but the truth of the practice of centering prayer in Christian meditation is that God is awakening in us, ready to emerge in life, the yes to come forth that transforms um, resistance and contraction. Uh, and it's a matter of letting that happen. So uh, as centering prayer evolves over time, um, it's a matter of being less effortful and more receptive and open to this simple presence of love that's ready to touch and transform us. Now, for people who are unfamiliar with centering prayer, you're describing it a little bit as Christian meditation, but for someone who's unfamiliar, can you describe what the process of centering prayer is, Mm -hmm. how it works? Yes, we kind of plunged right into this vast uh, uh, context of, of the love of God and the presence of God that's available at all times. So so centering prayer is one meditation practice that's a, a re-expression of the essence of Christian um, meditation that's been preserved in, mainly in monasteries for 2,000 years, but once in a while breaks out into uh, life outside the monastery, and that's been a valuable uh, uh, effect of the teachings in the last couple of uh, couple of generations that Centering Prayer has broken forth from the monastery to um, make the Christian meditation tradition available to people who live in ordinary life. And it it has a little form or a structure uh, that's really about getting started in the practice itself. And then there's a lot of nuance and subtlety that is built on that form or structure. And the simple form or structure um, has to do with uh, taking time apart, you know, from the busyness of life and sitting down for a period of time, 10 or 20 minutes, whatever one's commitment is, um, and uh, giving attention to a posture that's comfortable, relaxed, could be cross-legged or just simply, simply sitting in an open, uh, 
comfortable posture with an erect spine, a natural open posture that uh, is not too contrived but alert. And then having an intention uh, to open to God, whatever, whatever that might express. Some people have a deep relationship with Christ. Uh, and so the intention that is at the root of centering prayer is to open up to the presence of Christ, not as an object of thought, but as a consciousness, the Christ consciousness that's in everyone. But people practice centering prayer without that felt sense of relationship with Christ. They maybe just have a sense of opening to God as ultimate mystery or ultimate reality. The important thing is to have a little bit of preparation with intention and opening of the mind and heart. And then for the period of practice, you know, 20 minutes, say, then whenever you're engaged with a thought, that is, whenever you're thinking about your thoughts, um, then you ever so gently return to a word of one or two syllables, which is the sacred symbol of consent. Again, that we're attached to our thoughts and our emotions and not able to just be in the love of God that is the nature of reality, so we need some way of saying yes and disengaging with the thoughts. So going back to a, a classic in Christian spirituality from the Middle Ages, the cloud of unknowing, uh, the anonymous author of the cloud of unknowing taught uh, to have a one or two syllable word that expresses this yes to God. And whenever you're engaged with thinking about other thoughts, kind of an un- unconscious no, <laughs> to life and to one's own deeper uh, sense of presence in the love of God, then you just return ever so gently to that word. Now, one can also practice centering prayer with other symbols, the breath, the glance, and a more subtle form of practice called the sacred nothingness. But to begin centering prayer, it's usually taught with the word, practicing for a period of time, say 20 minutes with that preparation around posture and intention, and then having a period of time At the end, a few minutes, um, to let go of returning to the Word and then begin to re-engage with thoughts and emotions in a new way to find them gradually over time emerging out of the mystery of God so that there's no separation between peace and thoughts and emotions. And that's the best preparation for life because we have to have some kind of engagement with our thoughts and emotions to function in this world. Centering prayer is not trying to transcend the world. It's a developing a new relationship with oneself so that one can be in the world in a new way. Now, I want to circle back to what you said. Even before we begin the formal practice, we sit in our intent, in our intention for doing the practice. So what is your intention when you enter the practice of centering prayer? Um, these days, because I've been practicing for uh, uh, years in this approach of Christian contemplation and centering prayer that forms it, um, my intention is is just to be, just to be without effort, without struggle, to let everything be just as it is in the mystery of God, which is uh, has a sense of devotion to it, but also has a sense of presence and awakening in this mystery. Um, so when I start uh, my practice, I remember that intention, uh, that presence of God has a quality of love and compassion in my consciousness, but it's not a sentiment or an emotion. And, and, and with that intention, I find myself more open in a conscious way 
to the reality of God. And then once the practice begins, I don't think about it again because it's a non-conceptual form of meditation. It's not reflecting anymore. But the idea is that generating the intention at the beginning of the practice and then moving beyond intention into God, just as God is, without form, concept, or image, and and then having a period of time at the end where you come back to intention and thoughts and feelings is really the process of transformation in Centering Prayer, a gradual process where uh, one opens to God and God uh, opens to us. One says yes to God, and then God says yes to others in compassion, in simple, ordinary ways through us. Hmm. It's that second half, God opening to us, that I find curious. I think most people can intuitively understand what you mean that we enter a prayer practice to open to God. But isn't God already open to us, always? Like, What, what do you mean hmm. there? God, uh, yes, God is al- always open to us, but, but we don't experience it consciously. I think that's maybe the clarification um, uh, that needs to be uh, said. We don't experience God's presence in consciousness and in life. So God is always there, ready to break into our consciousness and in life. Um, but the process of, of centering prayer or Christian meditation is about letting us experience that in consciousness um, and in life. Let us, letting us experience the yes of God coming through in you know ordinary events of driving the car or washing the dishes or, or taking care of uh, children or just trying to make a living uh, because we're so attached to our own thoughts and feelings and emotions. There's no chance to experience the way that God is there in all things. And all things are, are in God, like uh, the one wonderful line from Christian uh, Chris, uh, scriptures, uh, it is in God that we live and move and have our being. It is in God that we live and move and have our being. So God is here all the time, and like Merton says, we just need to let God discover God's self in us so we can experience consciously that in daily life and have the sense of God um, in more and more of life and then lose that conscious sense into just presence, into great self-forgetfulness. Now, earlier in your life, I know that you studied and practiced within a Buddhist context, and then something happened, and you made this shift so that your life started to unfold within a Christian context. And I'm curious what happened for you. I mean, in your book, The Path of Centering Prayer, you describe it as a a type of conversion experience. And and so I'd love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. I wasn't raised uh, a Christian or raised with any uh, religious uh, training or upbringing. Um, I did go to church, I think, once that I remember. But when I was young, uh, in college, I began a real search for meaning and to try to understand what life was about. So uh, I studied psychology and transpersonal uh, psychology and got involved in meditation, uh, primarily Eastern meditation, Hindu and Buddhist meditation. And I was particularly drawn to Zen practice, Soto Zen practice, because there wasn't a lot of belief or dogma that was required of me. So I, I uh, practiced for a few years in that tradition. And uh, in the midst of that kind of uh, that orientation of practice, which is a profound path, 
um, I began to experience something that wasn't really spoken of in Zen. And sometimes it happened on uh, intensive retreats, Sashin, and sometimes it happened just in my ordinary life. Um, something about a presence that drew me deeper into emptiness and into fullness. For example, once I remember I was uh, living at home and I was going, it was in my junior year of college, I was, had a little apartment in my parents' basement where I could uh, live simply and drive off to school. And, and I was had done my Zen meditation practice this evening. It was an evening in uh, in December. And I came upstairs into the family living room and and uh, my parents were there, and uh, the television was on. And uh, playing on the television was this uh, was this uh, a Peanuts, uh, a Charles Schultz yeah. cartoon. Charlie Brown, yep. Charlie Brown's Christmas. It was December, and they used to play this every year. Um, and I just walked into the back of the room with kind of a centered, open mind, having just finished my Zazen practice. And at that point in the cartoon on television, uh, the character Linus uh, was asked, well, what's the true meaning of Christmas? And he starts to read this passage from Luke's gospel, the Christian scriptures, on the coming of the Christ, the uh, birth of Christ into the world. And I'm sitting in the back of the of the family room, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I felt this enveloping love kind of washing through me and over me and coming from everywhere and nowhere that was drawn forth from this cartoon character on the television reading the Christian scripture. And it happened, you know, for a few minutes, and uh, I just kind of quietly went back downstairs afterward and said, well, what was that? But it was a sense of being touched by the mystery of God. Um, I think Christianity is just my path as a contemplative, as a meditator. And I gradually began to have more and more of those experiences and the conversion or the change and the reawakening and the settling of my own life into my uh, life's path happened over a few years, but it was engendered by those kinds of experiences. I would never be in a, never be in a church so I could hear uh, scripture read um, or be around Christian teachers or anything like that. So it was kind of humorous that God <laughs> uh, God came to me through uh, the television or through a, a cartoon character, um, awakening me and settling me and orienting me towards my path of meditation. So it was really this sense of love and presence that inspired you to seek your way through Christianity versus Buddhism or Hinduism? I was to, Yes, I still practiced uh, uh, with the, the Sangha that I was with, the community, for a few years. Um, but I began to slowly ex- expose myself or be curious about the Christian meditation path. I had, not, had no conception of uh, that there was even a meditation path in Christianity because it's been a little bit obscured in the last few centuries and just relegated to monasteries. But I read uh, Thomas Merton, uh, this great contemplative writer and teacher who had died, you know, f- 15 years prior to that, 12 or 15 years. But his books somehow brought the path of Christian meditation alive for me. And he had a kind of a similar experience as a young man going through a conversion experience after having uh, uh, gotten into all different aspects of life. So he was a good connection for me. I kind of 
see him as maybe my first real connection with Christianity, you know, almost like a teacher through his life and through his uh, writings. So so over a period of a couple of years, I was still practicing uh, uh, Zazen and uh, going through all kinds of other changes and experiences, but this other aspect of my life began to awaken, and I didn't have a lot of support for it. I didn't really meet uh, uh, real Christian meditators for a few years after that initial conversion or uh, invitation into the Christian understanding of what meditation is, which is which involves love, not as a sentiment, but as a presence, that yes, that quality of love that that is a mystery beyond form and image, but brings the practitioner into the life of God itself, and then kind of lose even the sense of God at some point in order to let God live more fully in one. So it's, it's a path that has devotion to it, that has uh, practice, that has mystery, in terms of not being able to conceptualize in a clear way or know with any certainty in a dogmatic way what what God is because God is coming alive as an experience and then transforming the structures of experience itself. So that began to happen to me uh, very slowly and gradually when I was young and uh, and I began to pursue the Christian contemplative path, but I've always had a great uh, great appreciation for Buddhism and all the great world religions because I see the face of Christ the uh, uh, arising in all these great traditions in, in a unique way. They, the traditions themselves wouldn't call it Christ, but it's the same, to me, it's the same mystery of, of uh, compassion and uh, invitation into transformative practice. Now, you said something very interesting. You said transforming the structures of experience so that this experience of God transforms the way we're structured to experience life itself. Can you say what you meant by that? Yes. Well, uh, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. Uh, in the Christian tradition, the idea is that we are ourself, the who we experience ourselves to be, David or Tammy, is created in the image and likeness of God. But oftentimes we get stuck in this concept of feeling separate from God and separate from other people and just trapped in a what Merton and Thomas Keating, my spiritual father, call the false self or the separate self sense of, you know, separate from existence and life and other people. And so uh, meditation, Christian co- contemplative practice and centering prayer begin to transform that sense of self so that one is gradually um, uh, in greater touch with God's presence, you know, consciously coming into life and then seeing that presence in all of life and other people and finding a sense of unity with other people so that you're not, one is not trying to protect one's own turf or uh, uh, living by the hidden agendas of a, of a self that doesn't really exist on its own. The true person our true unique person is created in union with other people. But it's not, a, it's not a sense of self that we can feel attached to. It's a sense of self that you give away, just like Jesus did 2,000 years ago. His great gift of his self uh, was given away to other people in compassionate love and then established a kind of a, a path for anyone who uh, is oriented towards his presence. 
So uh, the structures of consciousness, usually we're thinking in subject-object kind of uh, thought and experience. The subject is the separate self-sense, and then we're thinking about thoughts and feeling objects of consciousness relating to other people who feel separate from us. That structure is transformed through um, contemplative practice like centering prayer gradually so that there's a sense of union with other people. And even uh, the sense of God as an object of thought is gradually transformed so that God becomes the subject, the hidden uh, reality in oneself more and more that's looking out through one's eyes uh, towards life, towards other people. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. If you're interested in listening to previous episodes of Insights at the Edge, they're all available for free in a searchable database as part of our new direct access membership program. For more information, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash direct access. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I don't want to get too stuck in words and definitions, but I do think this might be helpful because you use the word God quite freely, quite liberally. (laughs) And uh, I'm wondering, do you mean something particular when you use the word God? Uh, God is, uh, for me, of course, God is uh, wrapped up in the Christian revelation, which is God is Trinitarian, God is a mystery, uh, of transcendence, but also imminence in life. Uh, but if we just kind of set that uh, Christian uh, mystical or theological language on the side for a moment, it has its meaning and its importance. God is also just ultimate reality. Uh, God is God is uh, whatever one experiences and feels is uh, is the transcendent truth of one's life. So this is very relevant for centering prayer because people can practice centering prayer with a sense of felt relationship with Christ or with the Christian Trinitarian understanding of what uh, God is. But one can also practice centering prayer without um, that, with just a sense of relating and, and saying yes to ultimate reality in one's experience. For example, I uh, once there was a, a Buddhist teacher who uh, I was acquainted with, who came to a workshop that I led on centering prayer, uh, a morning workshop, just a basic introduction to the practice of centering prayer. And we did the basic teachings like we just explained a few minutes ago about uh, posture and having an intention and then a practice period and, and a word or a symbol of one's consent and then having a period at the end where you integrate that back into life. And we practiced for 20 minutes, and then I answered questions from the audience, and then I uh, had the chance to talk to her, this Buddhist teacher, just briefly afterwards. And she said she was very amazed that she had done this practice of centering prayer, this brief little exposure to it, and she had the most profound Buddhist experience that, uh, well, she had a very profound Buddhist experience, not the most profound Buddhist experience. But she was opening to that reality because of her intention, 
which was expressed as a relationship with ultimate mystery for her that was emptiness, shunyata, but the intention helped her enter into enter into a deeper relationship with that reality, at least during that morning. And it may have been just so she could have an understanding of what this tradition of practice was from her own experience. So God, God uh, for a centering prayer practitioner can be very intimate and very close and very personal as one's own experience of what ultimate reality is, what is most ultimate and most real for one in terms of uh, the important things of life, you know. And then for someone who's connecting with or downloading the Christian experience of that, it can also be infused with a sense of Christ and the Trinity and the love that's revealed and transmitted through the means of Christian uh, practice, like scripture, like it was explaining. Um, And if that happens with centering prayer, then one kind of also experiences a particular blessing in the practice, too. But centering prayer is wonderful because, like many other uh, meditation practices, you can practice it with the religious context, with the Christian understanding, but you can also get a sense of the practice without having to download that, just like mindfulness meditation can be practiced by a Buddhist in our culture with the Buddhist religious container, but it also has, um, you know, you can practice mindfulness without that Buddhist religious understanding and still have some benefit from it. Sure. The same is true for centering prayer. Now, you said something I didn't quite follow. You said that if I was practicing centering prayer within this Christian theological context, then I might receive a blessing of some kind. And I was like, what, what did he mean by that? What kind of blessing? <laughs> well, the blessing, the blessing of, the, of the presence of Christ, which is, is also uh, transmitted in the practice if one is open to it. So, um, so for a, a Christian practitioner, again, the presence of Christ is not um, a concept or an idea, but a, a living reality. Uh, and and uh, it's like a the Christ consciousness, um, which uh, dwells within the practice itself for one, if one is open to it. It's like having the inner blessings of the practice awakened in one through uh, a sense of devotion or intention, you know, like in the practice of centering prayer, you generate that or offer it at the beginning of the practice, and then you enter into the mystery of it itself. Because centering prayer as a Christian meditation practice is really meant to uh, transmit the mind or the consciousness of the founder of the religion, Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, and what his experience of ultimate reality was that he called Abba, or our father, the generative source of his consciousness. So my spiritual father, my mentor, uh, Father Thomas Keating, this Trappist monk, uh, coming in the lineage of Thomas Merton, the another great Trappist monk, really uh, says that, uh, that the uh, if one really goes deep into centering prayer with the openness or the intention to uh, say yes to the mystery that's was awakened in Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago and then transmitted through uh, little contemplative communities for 2,000 years ago, monastic and non-monastic, and kind of bubbles up in new forms for contemporary society, then one can uh, open up in grace to that same blessing that Jesus experienced 
and that he transmits through his own consciousness to the practitioner of centering prayer or Christian meditation. So I want to hear more about that because this is not something that is part of my own inner knowing what you're talking about right now. So I really want you to uh, show it to me, if you will, Mm -hmm. which is this appearance of this blessing, this sense of the presence of Christ using your language. Help me understand what that's actually like for you in your prayer life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I have a, a, a sense of, of over the years, I've been practicing for you know, 30 or 35 years, of, of a deepening experience of what Christ is. And now for me, Christ is is not tied up with the, the sacrificial mystery that's there in his uh, on uh, transmitted on Good Friday where he offered his life um, in compassion for other people. Um, that's a, a really important part of the mystery of Christ. Um, it's, it's sometimes touched in by the resurrection, which was what happened after <laughs> the crucifixion, where his consciousness was available in a new form, his body his body was uh, a resurrected body and touched his disciples as it touched me in life. If I um, have a little bit of pause in my activity, you know, for example, we're driving over here this morning for this interview and uh, uh, just uh, had the chance to stop at the stoplight coming off of the freeway and I opened myself in some way to uh, the mystery of God that I know and could sense that resurrected presence of Christ right there at the edge of the freeway, um, kind of uh, bringing me into greater openness and just in the present moment without thought or concept. And in that openness, there's a little bit more compassion, a little bit freedom from my own agendas and uh, neuroses and uh, concerns. Um, but to me, it's it's a living reality, um, uh, that, that sense of Christ. It's, it's, Christ is almost like my guru in the sense of being an inner teacher. Um, but but the key part of Christian practice to understand is that that presence is there as a guide, but it also gets lost as an object of experience so that it can come alive a little bit more fully in oneself to other people. So I don't always have that sense of felt relationship uh, with Christ. Uh, sometimes it's just presence because that mystery is in me looking out, you know, to the world through my eyes, but something I can't claim. It's just ordinary, and it's just in the moment, and, and hopefully it diminishes a little bit of my uh, neurosis and uh, concern so that I can be a little bit more present. To talk a little bit more about this sense of relating to Christ and then being willing to lose the relationship, um, I don't know if you remember Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you know, the great uh, Christian saint and teacher. Uh, uh, she, uh, a few years ago, uh, some of her letters to her spiritual directors were published. Um, and uh, in those letters, written over the course of uh, two or three decades of her life, after she founded her uh, Missionaries of Charity, uh, she describes a period of time that came back to her where she lost the sense of belief in God and the lost the sense of Christ's presence to her 
and it was very painful for her because she didn't understand it. She didn't understand what was going on. And these letters were a little bit, uh, when they were published a few years ago, they caused a little bit of concern or, 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 you know, well, what happened to Mother Teresa? Did she really uh, lose her faith? Well, I was reading these letters and I thought, well, I know what happened to her as much as one can know. She was she was a great contemplative practitioner. She practiced um, contemplative prayer for three hours a day, um, not in the form of centering prayer, but in a slightly different practice. And what she was doing was losing the sense of Jesus or the sense of Christ or even the sense of God as an entity outside her that she could feel or relate to because Christ was coming alive so much through her. I had the chance uh, in the, the late 80s um, when I was living in our retreat center in New York to briefly meet her, Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Mm. She was um, in the South Bronx uh, uh, at a church one Saturday, and I heard about this, and so we went down to to meet her because a group of her nuns were receiving their vows, and she was there attending it. And I didn't have a big connection with her before that, but at one point of the service, she got up. She was invited to give up and give a few words of... Uh, of wisdom to, you know, the assembly of people who are gathering there in this little church. And she talked for about five or ten minutes. Um, and she talked very s- simply, as she always did, about about compassion and about love and the need to care for other people and to and to care for them and serve them as Christ, as God, to, to care for the divinity in them. And I was sitting in the back of the church in this little pew and and just like in that experience I described with the, the with Linus in the Peanuts cartoon, which was about ten years before that, a- along with Mother Teresa's words, I felt again the presence of Christ, kind of coming to me in a loving, tender but infinite mystery, uh, a mysterious way. So something in her was able to transmit that to other people. And then, uh, uh, during that day, after she finished her little words, we all were invited to come up and congratulate the nuns who had just made their vows and say hello to her. And I was walking through this little reception line, um, and I got to Mother Teresa, and and I kind of bent down because she was about almost four feet tall. And she was there with her in her little sari, you know, the little uh, Mm -hmm. habit that she wore, the monastic habit. And I looked into her eyes, and it was just this deeply wrinkled uh, face, uh, and uh, not that attractive physically, but just radiant with beauty and simpleness and ordinariness. And she looked very tired and exhausted. And I just took her hand, and I said, well, thank you so much for your work, and kind of received the blessing of her presence. But those two experiences that day, the first one when I just kind of felt the presence of God's love leading me into greater freedom and mystery. And then that sense of seeing her face, this ordinary human face, they were both icons to me or experiences to me of two sides of the Christian understanding of what God is, that God is love that comes through us as if God was coming through her to me through her words, but also God was wrapped up in the ordinariness of her face just the simple human experience that was there. She looked very tired. If I would have seen her on outside the church on the streets of the South Bronx, I would have given her a dollar because she looked like uh, kind of a homeless person. Mm-hmm. And she would have given a dollar to somebody else. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, anyways, that story was very meaningful for me, or that early experience, because, again, years later, when I read these letters that she had written to her spiritual director over the course of years, many years, when she was not getting the right teaching on what was happening to her in her meditation practice, I understood more fully. I said, of course, she lost the sense of God's presence in her because God was coming alive through her to other people as it happened to me in that church, in this transcendent mystery of love that was touching me, but also in the ordinariness of her face and her utter humanity and her struggle and her tiredness. And both were wrapped up together in the mystery of what Christian uh, transformation is. Mm-hmm. So so the, the idea of what is the Christian God, is a, that topic is a huge one. Yeah, and you know, I think part of the reason I'm going down that line of questioning is it's something I haven't understood very well. Like you mentioned, someone could approach centering prayer and and simply be contacting ultimate reality, simply working with consenting more and more to ultimacy. And that's very intuitively obvious to me. At the same time, one could practice centering prayer and explore this Trinitarian nature of God as explained in the Christian theological framework. And that's where I have like this big question mark. Like, I don't really get that. It's never dropped into my body as something that makes sense. So I go back to simply understanding this idea of ultimacy. So I'm wondering here, David, if you can help me. And that's why I'm sort of pursuing this, which is here you're talking a little bit about what it might be within that Trinitarian context to receive a blessing from Christ. But clearly there's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that this whole thing makes up the Christian view of ultimacy. So can you help me understand that? And from the perspective of what you yourself have experienced through your centering prayer practice? Uh, I think it's something of a mystery, and it's hard to describe. Yeah, it's it's a mystery that's, uh, uh, to me, it's wrapped up in, uh, well, what is one's true path? What is what is well? How do you how do you find your true teacher? I think this is a question for for every seeker uh, of you know whatever meditation path one is on. How do you how does one find one's own uh, teacher and one's own tradition? Uh, and that all these traditions have grown up. You know, we're we're in a unique time in our world because they're all existing kind of in parallel to each other, and we're kind of exposed to many different teachings and transition uh, traditions. Um, but what is one's own path, and how is that uh, awakened in one? I think, in my experience, that's helped by uh, by the, some kind of meditation practice where you let go of the thinking process, such as we're describing in Centering Prayer. That's a prerequisite. I mean, um, the Christian understanding is that God can break into life at any time, but if one has a practice, one is more open or accident-prone <laughs> to the accidents of grace. Um, and and how does that happen? Uh, I think it happens because of, of the nature of uh, reality itself, which has a compassionate quality to it. Um, how does it. How did it happen for me? I can't be sure about why this was my path, really, in some way. It's a little hard for me to answer. Um, 
I think it's uh, something about uh, uh, about uh, connecting with the mystery that's there. I mean, I was around a lot of other teachings when I was young, Buddhist teachings, Hindu teachings, and that same sense of awakening into the inner uh, inner aspect of those traditions didn't happen for me. But it did in Christianity, and it was really... Um, it was really uh, uh, a little confusing at the time. So, I th- to me, I think this is part of the of the path of meditation. Is that, yeah, we have to have a practice to dispose ourselves to uh, the gifts that are there in a tradition, and then just realize that some of it is is uh, unknown. But this trinitarian nature of reality, how you intuitively came to appreciate that through the centering prayer practice. And what that appreciation is, that's what I'm looking to understand. Oh, I see. So, well, in the Christian understanding, um, uh, the Trinity is is uh, the na- one aspect of the nature of ultimate reality or God. And uh, it's not so much uh, like a, a threesome of people, but it's it's the structure of reality and the structure of life itself in which everything is created. So Christ, uh, the consciousness that was in Jesus of Nazareth two thousand years ago, is kind of the entry into the Trinity for most Christians. Uh, the Father is the unseen uh, source of Christ, the the generative source that speaks the word of Christ into life. And then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the energy or the inflow of love between those. Um, so the Father is like the subject, the, the self that cannot be seen, the aspect of God, the unseen supreme source of God. And then Christ is the manifestation of that. And then the Spirit is, is the mystery of love that unites the two in self-gift. So it's actually a wonderful intuition about um, who we are or who the Christian practitioner is created in the image of God. Um, the Christian practitioner is, is, has this presence of God, which is energy and love uh, at the source of one's consciousness, but also the Christ is the presence of, of, uh, of God within that leads the Christian practitioner into deeper union with God. Now, now this is important to understand because the deepest aspect of Christian contemplation is to practice, as described in in um, in this book on the path of centering prayer, uh, without a symbol, without a word, to represent one's consent to God, but just with God, God's presence itself, which can be experienced as silence or stillness or inner spaciousness sometimes. And to relate to that, but to lose that relationship so that God comes to life in the unseen quality of the Father within oneself. So the Trinity is really a mystery that's hard to describe. It's a mystery of love. It's a mystery uh, that doesn't fit into dualistic thought. Um, But it's a mystery in which the the patterns of, of consciousness and the structure of life um, is imaged in one's own existence. Um, so it's a little bit like uh, if you just think more of a concrete example of, of water. If you say that water can appear in different shapes, it can uh, appear uh, in a, in, as fluid water, it can appear as ice when it's frozen, and it can appear as steam. 
Um, uh, and the Trinity is like that. It's like it's like the different aspects of God that uh, take different form or shape. So uh, in this simple metaphor, uh, water in the form of ice is like Christ. It's something tangible that you can relate to. Water in the form of uh, a liquid is more like the spirit that moves and permeates everything and finds its own course and gives life to all of existence. And water in the form of steam is this unseen, disappearing uh, entity that's more like the Father, what Jesus called the Abba, the generative source of his own existence, that's rather intangible. Um, so that's the Christian mystical intuition about what one aspect of God is. It's this, uh, it's this mystery that's hard to articulate but is imaged in life and imaged in us. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were talking about Father Thomas Keating, you referred to him as your quote-unquote spiritual father. And I thought that was um, a beautiful and interesting phrase. You know, often people will talk about their teacher or their meditation coach or their mentor. But a term like spiritual father is a term within the Christian tradition that you won't hear other places. I'm curious what you associate with that term, spiritual father. Yeah, it's a traditional term. Uh, going back to the uh, second and third centuries in Christianity, uh, when this movement of Christian meditation took off, there was uh, uh, led by the Abbas, the spiritual fathers, and the Amas, the spiritual mothers. So uh, the spiritual fathers and the spiritual mothers, the Amas and the Abbas, lived in the deserts of what's now Syria and uh Egypt and uh, the Middle East, and they formed little communities of practitioners. And there was a there was a very intimate kind of community that was involved among those little groups of practitioners. They lived in in uh, you know some were hermits, more hermits, and some lived more uh, a social life together. But it was all oriented towards contemplative prayer, and it's really the first time that the uh, written tradition of what Christian contemplative practice was was articulated by these fathers and mothers of the desert. Anyways, ever since then, there have been uh, little communities, and sometimes in monasteries and sometimes outside monasteries, where a mentor, a spiritual father or a spiritual mother, has been uh, seen as a guide or a teacher. And for me, that hap- that's happened through uh, Thomas Keating, who is a who I met a few years after having gone through this conversion experience. My only guide was Thomas Merton, just reading his books. And uh, then I had the chance to meet Thomas Keating. He's He had just retired, um, being an abbot of a large monastery, and was, was beginning to teach centering prayer around the country. And I heard him give a talk at a Vedanta Society in Berkeley, California, where I was living. And I thought, oh my God, here is a Christian master um, who had the teachings, not only the ability to articulate them, but he was living in that consciousness that I was describing, the consciousness of Christ. And uh, I wrote him a letter and asked him for some help. He was coming back to Berkeley, and we began um, our contact, which has been really about uh, 29 or 30 years now. So a, a spiritual father in the Christian tradition is not like a guru. Um, the guru or the ultimate teacher is Christ but um, a guide in whom the qualities uh, of 
Christ might be manifest in an ordinary way. So, for example, for uh, Father Thomas Keating, um, uh, some of the qualities that first impressed me about him were his compassion and his openness. He's a very, as you know, he's a very articulate um, and refined person um, and quite a quite a theologian in a way. But in in the midst of all that, there was a great sense of simple, ordinary love. I remember when I went on retreat with him for the first time uh, in 1983, uh, a two-week centering prayer retreat uh, at, in New Mexico at the Lama Foundation. It was a great experience. He kind of imparted his great teaching on centering prayer and helped initiate me into the practice in a deeper way than it had happened before. What impressed me so much was his ordinary humanness. There was one morning um, where I was uh, not feeling well about halfway through the retreat. We were in these little adobe rooms uh, in this retreat center, a very small group of about 12 people. And and I heard someone passing by outside, and I just went and interrupted them in their silence and said, listen, I'm not going to be able to get to the, the morning practice because I'm just not feeling well. And I went back to my bed and laid down and and uh, my stomach was upset, and I was just just with the experience. And after about an hour and a half or two hours, uh, there was a knock on the door, and I opened it, and uh, there was Thomas Keating. He had finished the leading the morning uh, meditation. He came to find out how I was, and in a very solicitous way, he said, "Well, well, I heard you weren't feeling well. How are you?" And I said, um, "Well, I've, my stomach is upset, and I'm just not feeling well." And 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 he came in, and he said, "Well, can I help you in any way?" And he was just so kind and so present in this in this very human way. He's this great spiritual master, and he was concerned about my stomach ache. And he went and he got me a, a homeopathic remedy from my room, from his room, um, and I took that. And he and he said to me, "Well, have you really prayed with this?" And I said, well, I'm sitting, I'm doing my practice, but I'm lying down. He says, oh, no. He says, I mean, have you really prayed and asked for God's help? And I said, well, no, I'm here doing centering prayer. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you pray? And, and, and I said, okay. And so he left, and, and I let myself pray then, because he had told me how to pray and to let my prayer come through the pain through my discomfort in my stomach. And I offered it in surrender to the mystery of God and took the homeopathic, and I wasn't sure what really helped, uh, but I felt much better. Uh, I think partially it was his presence to me, Thomas Keating's presence to me, his ultimate concern in a very intimate human way. So a spiritual father, an Abba, or a spiritual mother, an Abba, an Amma, in Christianity, they're like that. They're, you know, they can be teachers, but they're also mentors in a way in which the teachings and the life of God are present to um, to someone. And if someone has, if you're able to, if one is able to have that kind of relationship, it can be very beneficial, because the primary teacher, Christ, is invisible, and and a reality that is one is relating to, but then also being lost in. So having a mentor and having a community um, are very important gifts on the spiritual journey in Christianity. Now, I've heard it said that when meditation, the practice of meditation, can really start impacting the Christian world, people who identify themselves as Christian, then we're really going to start seeing 
rapid spiritual transformation in the world since so much of the world's population is Christian. And I'm wondering what you think about that. And if you think of centering prayer, contemplative prayer, as a type of movement, a movement that is picking up steam in this regard. Mm -hmm. I think it is. Yes, centering prayer has been taught for uh, outside the monasteries since the 1970s. And in the course of that, uh, those uh, decades it's it's really found a home in many parts of Christianity, but not every part because um, sometimes the fundamentalist attitude towards religion and particularly in Christianity um, is less uh, understanding of a practice in which one lets go a way of prayer or devotion or like Christian meditation, Christian contemplation, where one's letting go of ideas of God in order to develop a, a loving relationship with God so so in some parts of Christianity, centering prayer um, has not yet found a home, but it's avail- It's a gift that's available to anyone. Um, and again, like you were saying, a little bit outside the realm of the Christian uh, religious world, other people have connected with centering prayer. Some people in uh, recovery, uh, practicing the 12 steps uh, through AA or OA or whatever form of, of uh, recovery one is in, some people have picked up centering prayer as an 11th step practice. The 11th step in recovery, of course, is seeking to develop an ongoing relationship with a higher power through prayer and meditation. So centering prayer has uh, had a place and found influence in, in our society, and I certainly hope that it would continue to do that. Um, in the course of 2,000 years of Christian history, uh, there have been many renewals, of the con- uh, the contemplative life that have contributed to society, and sometimes they die out, and sometimes they come back, you know, and uh, the Christian message comes back in this contemplative understanding in a new way. It's very traditional because it dates to Christ's teachings and to the early teachings of the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers. And my hope, yes, would be that it would continue to flourish. The particular teaching of Centering Prayer uh, I think is very suited to this uh, society we're in because it also has great respect for other uh, traditions, uh, interspiritual and interreligious uh, sensitivity. And again, it's a it's a path that's uh, the path of centering prayer is reinforced by um, serious retreat practice. We have uh, a lot of retreat opportunities all over the country, and the retreat center in Snowmass, Colorado, where. Uh, Father Thomas lives at the monastery. There are centers in this network of practitioners. Uh, But also it's a practice for ordinary life. It's a practice that's uh, strengthened by retreat. I myself had uh, 10 years where I was living at a retreat uh, facility and doing intensive practice and a, a period of a few years of solitary retreat. But the real import of centering prayer is practice in the ordinary routines of daily life. And I certainly hope that flourishes and continues. So David, if we were to think of Centering Prayer as a movement, a movement in our world today, do you have a sense of what your role is in that movement? Um, well, I've, I've uh, I'm been around for a little while, and so I'm, uh, I'm seeking to help provide uh, for uh, for people who are maturing on the practice, the kind of instruction uh, in the deepening levels of its practice, uh, and also my interest is also to reach 
reach out to younger generations, uh, people in their 20s and 30s, um, who may not yet have been touched by the message of Christian meditation or the practice of centering prayer. So there's a sense in which uh, the renewal of Christian meditation has been developing over the past couple of uh, decades. Thomas Merton and others like Merton in the 50s and 60s, uh, 1950s and 1960s, articulated this message, this possibility of Christian meditation and the Christian transformative path. And then a generation later, Thomas Keating and his fellow uh, monks who taught centering prayer, Father Basil Pennington, Father William Menninger, they developed this practice, you know, so that people could do what Merton was talking about. And then a generation later, now, um, there are there are people uh, who are looking to develop and articulate from their experience of having been on the path for a while, the nuances of the practice and ways to reach new people um, who might not have connected with the way the centering prayer practice was articulated 30 years ago, but the essence of the practice is still there. And so how, how do you do that? How do you create new structures? I'm interested to see if if we could create a, a form of a monastic community, such as I had when I was young, under Thomas Keating's guidance, where one can go away and live the monastic life for a period of time without making a final vow. In the Christian tradition, if one is a monk, one has a permanent vow. In our community, uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, we didn't have that structure. We lived a very serious monastic commitment uh, to prayer and to silence and simplicity and meditation and service without a permanent vow, and it was a wonderful training to move back into life. For me, I was there for 10 years. Very interested in, in seeing if young people would be drawn to that kind of experience now uh, as a training ground for uh, for life. So that's how I, uh, some ways, at least now, I, I see, uh, yeah, everything changes in one's life, and who knows what's going to be around the corner next time, next year. I just have one final question for you, David, which is the entire second half of your book on the path of centering prayer is about contemplative attitudes and the attitudes that support the practice and living really a contemplative life. And I'm curious if you had to pick just one attitude, one attitude that you think is the most important contemplative attitude to support this life of opening to God, to the mind of Christ. What attitude would that be? Uh, well, there's a few of them mentioned in that. Uh, kind of teach You're only about allowed to pick one Just here. one here. <laughs> well, the one that I, I think I would pick is, is just about being, this contemplative attitude of just being, without effort, without struggle. The more that we can live in that disposition in centering prayer, uh, the more we're aligned with the being of God, which is pure love, pure presence, pure pure consent, the mystery in which everything is is held, but so much of of you know of our one's own effort in in meditation kind of gets in the way of just being. So the attitude just to be, just to rest without without having to try to achieve anything, is a valuable contemplative disposition because then it infuses gradually over time um, the things that you have to do, which is letting go of thoughts and and returning to uh, God, but with a greater sense of trust and just presence and, and relaxation into the mystery that's here 
now. So just to be, just to be in the being of God. And my spiritual father, Thomas Keating, in his retirement now, he's 89 years old, uh, and he's at the monastery. He doesn't travel anymore. Uh, He has uh, some health problems these last few years that don't allow him to travel, but he finds it's a wonderful time for him after a lifetime of dedication and service and traveling all over the world and the teaching on centering prayer, just to be, he says. He's just up there being in God, just God in everything. So I think that uh, contemplative attitude, uh, my appreciation for the contemplative attitude of just being is reinforced by my spiritual father and seeing him now where he can be present to his students in centering prayer in a deep, deep way uh, without having to do anything because that's the real intuition of what a God is in the Christian understanding God is the source of everything God is closer to us than we are to ourselves so to be in that reality is the great gift of Christian meditation and of centering prayer thank you so much I've been talking with David Fernet. He's the author of a new book published by Sounds True called The Path of Centering Prayer, Deepening Your Experience of God. And I have to say that the book was a a beautiful book to read and be with. And it also really helped me appreciate the depths of centering prayer as a path and how it can really take someone on the full spiritual journey. So thank you so much for the inner work that you've done to be able to create a book like The Path of Centering Prayer. Thank you, David. No, thank you, Tammy. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.